All right, please grab a seat. So this is the point in our service. It's uh, one of my, the favorite hours of my week where I have the incredible privilege of taking the scriptures and uh, sharing with you uh, God's heart for us, God's message for us. Uh, in just a few moments after uh, I'm done, if you're visiting with us, just so you know what's coming, uh, we have what's called a connection time, which is an opportunity to gather with one another, encourage one another, maybe meet someone new, grab a coffee out back. If you have kids over in the kids wing, we gather them back here. We take about 10 minutes for that. And then we respond to God's word with worship. We, we believe with all of our hearts here that, um, that the message that God has for us isn't just meant to land on us and we, and we just take that, but we're meant to respond. That, that God's word to us this morning is meant to lead us into a responsive worship of him. And so we will respond with more of that great music and, and songs and prayers of, of thanksgiving and praise and honor to our great God. So if you have a Bible with you, if you brought one with you, if you have it on your phone, if you want to use the red one in the pew in front of you, I'll invite you to turn to um, Isaiah chapter 6, which is where we're going to camp out most of our time this morning. So this fall, we have been in this series that we are calling Revive Us Again, which is really a a prayer uh, for God to do a new and renewing work among us. That as we look at the history of the Christian church over the centuries, that um, Really, uh, God has done his most intense work in in periods uh, of these short, extraordinary times of renewal where he reorients the hearts of God's people back towards him. And and his spirit is poured out in an extraordinary way. And, and we're simply saying, Lord, would you do that work among us? And would you begin with us? That the need of the hour, that the need of the hour in our culture um, here in North America, the need of the hour for the church in Niagara in 2016, Lord, is for you to do a new work, that you would awaken our hearts to the realities of this world, to the realities of your word, and, and, uh, and that we would respond with a, a, a white-hot love for you. And that you, Lord, would... would um, cause the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is, to penetrate more hearts and more lives. Um, one of the things that I think is a takeaway, and we're concluding this uh, series uh, this morning, and next week we're going to hop back into our uh, study of the gospel of John, this biography of Jesus. But one of the things that I think God's been really laying on me uh, about this is that um, we don't want this series about revival and looking at the biblical stories of biblical revival and comparing them with revivals in the history of the church, we don't want that to be a burden on us. As if somehow we need to cause revival to happen, that we need to plan a revival, that we need to stage a revival, but rather it's coming to God and saying, Lord, your work, you are the sovereign king. You do what you will. You, um, you act in your time and according to your will. And so we just want to posture our, ourselves before you humbly and ask you to do a new work, to ask us to restore our love for you, to ask us to, to have a new affection and to have new boldness in this world. We, we want that. We want to posture ourselves before you that way. But the call is not for us to plan or stage or cause a revival. A revival is something that's unique and extraordinary. It's an act of God. We can't extort a revival from God. There's not a set of conditions that if we will meet these things, then God must um, cause a, a, a revival to happen. We don't extort it. We dare not demand it from him, and we certainly don't deserve it uh, from him. And so the question that I want to wrestle with as we conclude this series is, what do we do 
if we're not in a season of revival? What do we, what, what, do we just sit and wait? Do we uh, kind of wait passively and, and say, well, I'm just going to wait for God to do a reviving work in my heart and the reviving work in our church. And other than that, I'll sit back and wait pa- passively. And maybe I'll um, passive-aggressively blame God for the lack of fruit. Zechariah 4, verse 10, the God says, and he asks the prophet Zechariah, he says, who despises the day of small things? He says, who despises the day of small things? He spoke this into the context of um, the people of Israel had been um, brought into exile in Babylon, and a, and a remnant, a, a, a piece of God's people had, of the Israelites, had returned to Jerusalem, and they had begun the work of rebuilding the temple. But the people, as the temple foundation was laid, those who remembered the previous temple, the temple that Solomon built, this glorious, majestic, incredible work of architecture, this glorious temple of, of wor- where worship of God happened, the, they, were, they were discouraged. This one is not as grand. They're discouraged. They remembered God's work in the past through that temple, and they, they were discouraged by by the, the, the work that they had seen. The, the, the work on rebuilding the temple at this point had actually stalled. And it seemed impossible that it would happen. And so God's people were easily discouraged. And it was tempting for them to neglect the rebuilding of the temple. And God comes and he says to Zechariah and he says to God's people through Zechariah, he says, who, who will despise the day of small things? Who despises the day of small things? You see, revivals are relatively rare. And as we would um, emphasize that point, um, that the fact that r- times of, of extraordinary activity of God in, in what we would call and classify as a revival, if we, if we stress how the, they're relatively rare, they may discourage us in our prayers for them. But if we, at the same time, overemphasize the potential for revival, it may lead to incredible disappointment with God that he hasn't given something that he hasn't promised to give. And so it's, I think it's very easy for us to be wrongly disappointed with the present time. It's, it's easy for us to be wrongly disappointed with uh, present fruitfulness. And the call for us is not to wait for a time of revival in order to be active in our faith. We began this series in the prophecy of Isaiah, towards the end of Isaiah, where Isaiah cried out and he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Oh, that you would open the heavens, that you would tear open a hole and that you would come down, that your presence would be made known among us. This cry for God to do something spectacular. And we're going to conclude this series as well in the prophecy of Isaiah. And as we began, um, I just, I, I'm convinced that, that a renewal of God's work is the need of the hour. As we look at our culture, this in many ways, a fractured culture, right? Especially as we look south of the border, which, you know, we say, well, you know, we're Canadian. We sign and say, well, we're separated from that. Like, the border is a thin line, right? We're, we're, what, that fractured culture that we live in, this world that we live in, this world has gone mad. We, we live in a culture of fear in many ways. We live in a culture that loves tolerance, that, that, that says that um, tolerance is of the highest value, and yet we would be intolerant of anyone who would have exclusive views. 
this intolerant tolerance that, that we live in. And so sometimes as followers of Jesus, we um, can struggle with, you know, how do we hold to Christian truth in a pluralistic age? How can we, um, as Christians, hold to the truth of the, of the Scriptures that there is only one way to reconciliation with God, and that's through Jesus, through a relationship with Him and through faith in His name? How do we hold that in a culture that uh, is intolerant of um, exclusive claims like that? How do, we, how do we take the ethical claims of Scripture, and how do we live those out in, in, in a gracious way in this world? And I think Isaiah chapter 6 um, has has four things that um, that for our day, the need of our hour, that four things that Isaiah six would call us to cultivate in us, and those four things that as we go through this passage in, in Isaiah chapter six, four things that that God would have us cultivate are an unshakable hope. He would ask us to cultivate a high view of God, to cultivate, thirdly, an awareness of our profound need, and fourthly, a willingness to be sent. An unshakable hope, a high view of God, an awareness of profound need, and a willingness to be sent. Isaiah chapter 6 begins, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. This is a famous passage, you know, even um, just beginning to read that now, if you are versed in the scriptures, if you have a long history in church, you've, um, you know this passage, you know, what, you know where it's going. I was in Toronto last fall with uh, our friend Onusfor from Burundi, and I wanted to give him a, a, a distinctively Canadian experience, so I took him to a burger joint called the Burger's Priest. It's a great burger, by the way. If you're ever in Toronto, or they're actually scattering now. It's redeeming the burger one at a time. The uh, burger's priest. And on the wall is Isaiah chapter 6, written out in both English and Arabic. This, this beautiful passage. But sometimes we can um, read over, you know, this famous passage. We can miss that opening words, in the year King Isaiah died. In the year King Isaiah died. What's, what's all, what's... What's significant about that? Did anyone know anything about King Isaiah? Some of you were like, yeah, I've studied him. Cross-reference this passage. This, in the year King Isaiah died, this is, a, this is a, a moment of cultural fear. This is a moment of great instability. King Isaiah was one of the great kings of Judah. He was one of the good ones. There was only a few of them. And he was a great one, and he had a long reign. And King Isaiah was, was a magnificent king. He came, uh, he, he came to power, and it says that he sought God. He was a king who was seeking after God and who listened to the prophets. That he, he, he was someone who set his heart towards seeking after God, to knowing God, to following him. And that when he, when he wanted wisdom and when he wanted a word from God, he would call to God's uh, anointed prophets, and say, what, what, was the, what would the Lord say to this? And he would listen humbly. He would humble himself to listen to what the prophet said and take the word of God at its face value. He was a godly king. He was a powerful king. He was a king who defeated the enemies of Israel. He, he expanded Israel's, Judah's borders. He built up the army. He built up reserves for the army. He was actually an inventor of weapons systems. He was a powerful, protecting king. He was also a providing king. It says of King Isaiah that he loved the soil. He loved the soil. And so uh, he, under his reign, you know, the, the, the crops prospered and flourished. 
which is really what citizens want, right, from their political leaders. They want protection. They want a good economy. They want security, safety, and a good economy. Protection and provision from their leader. Now, King Isaiah was this, was this great king with a long reign, but he doesn't end well, actually. Pride ent- eventually enters his heart, and he uh, wants to go into the temple to offer incense to God, which is a place only for priests to go. And the priests were standing up, and you know, I think there was like 70 of them blocking him, and yet he pushes through, and he goes into the temple to offer incense to God. And he was struck with leprosy on his face which led quickly to his death. And so um, it, the, the, the people of God, the, the um, people of Judah, are now at this moment of great uncertainty, of great despair. There's good king, this king who's protected us from our enemies, this king who has provided for us economically, this king who has um, been a godly example, has had his downfall, has now died. And so what is going to come next? What will happen And so there was this great cultural uncertainty, this great um, realization that they had placed their hope in this good king. But he had let them down and he was now dead. And so as God's people in this time, in this time of uncertainty, in this time of of great um, uh, fracturing across political lines, across ideological lines, across ethnic lines, this time of great fracture and this time of fear, this world of fear. If you think of what's going on in this world, it's crazy right now. It's absolutely crazy what is going on in the Middle East, what's going on south of the border in this election. Like, it's crazy. And it would be so easy for us as God's people to um, allow fear to dominate our thinking and to say, well, um, and we see, and it breaks my heart as we look at the church south of the, in the U.S. So many um, conservative Christians are just trying to cling to power. And so compromising uh, the message of the gospel and, and compromising values in order to cling to political power. It's so easy for us to place our hope in things other than God. And yet Isaiah says, in the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. I saw the Lord. Every culture has to ask, what can we trust? What can we trust as the place where we would find unshakable hope? Will it be in our education? Will it be in our military power? Will it be in our technology? Will it be in our politics? And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord and he was seated on the throne. In the midst of chaos, he has a vision that transcends it all which invites us in this season, in this culture, where do we put our hope? And our hope that is unshakable. The message of the gospel is that God is on the throne. God's on the throne. He's on the throne. And so, in the midst of this culture, we're, I think, encouraged to cultivate an unshakable hope. We're also cultivate, asked to cultivate a high view of God. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, angels, each with six wings. Picture this, six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah has this vision of God, and God is on a throne, and he is high and exalted. He is lifted up. As I would have a concern for the church, as I would have a concern for us, would be that we sometimes have too low a view of God. Sometimes we have too low a view of God. You know, our culture, and I think sometimes our church culture too, as a community, is that we don't trust anything that would be great and mighty and powerful. Certainly, as Canadians, we we would have a great distrust in anything that is great and mighty and powerful. Anything that would have anyone that would claim authority, we, f- we feel is probably corrupt. And so, we often bring God down to our level. And we forget that he is high and lifted up. That he is exalted. A.W. Tozer says this, it's on the screen here, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And a man's or woman's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason... The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most significant fact about any man or woman is not what he or she at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Think about that for a second. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. We become like what we worship or who we worship. We become like the thing that we worship. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. The most important thing about a person is what comes to our minds when we think about God. And too often, I think we have lowered our idea of God down to our opinion. And we make God and who he is and what he is like subject to our preferences and our opinions. And so sometimes we say things like, I just couldn't worship a God who, and we fill in the blank. Right? I couldn't worship a God who would allow that to happen. Who are we worshiping? Where are we putting our trust? We're putting our trust in ourselves. That our idea of God is greater than the idea of God that would be revealed by the scripture. A comment like that says, we've lowered God down to our opinion. God is who I want him to be like. Christian Smith is a sociologist, I think at Harvard. And he did a, a, a huge study of the theology of millennials. Uh, people in their late teens, early 20s. 
did this a couple years back, and he says, by and large, the prevailing theology of millennials, both in and outside the church, is what he would call moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Which says this, that there is a God who exists, who created and watches over human life. That God wants people to be good, nice, and fair with each other. There's the moralistic The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Therapeutic. God doesn't need to be particularly involved in my life except when I need him to solve a problem. So God, I don't have a lot of friends right now. Would you give me some friends? God, I uh, am discouraged about this, so I need you to encourage me. God, I have this problem in my life and I need you to fix it. I'm going to ignore you the rest of the time. As soon as you fix it, I will ignore you, but... Now I have this problem, and I want you to fix it for me pronto. And then fifthly, good people go to heaven when they die. Moralistic, therapeutic deism is the prevailing view that the church has passed on to young people. God wants me to be good, be a good little boy or girl. If I'm a good little boy or girl, I'll go to heaven when I die. And God's only going to be involved in my life when I want him to be, when I have a problem. We've reduced God down, and we've made God in our own image. God is who I want him to be like. We're in danger of making God in our own image. You see, if your idea of God never offends or challenges you, if your God never corrects you, if your God never um, says what you're doing is wrong and you need to change, You've made a God in your own image. Jesus offended everyone. He was an equal opportunity offender. Right? Jesus offended the religious and the irreligious. Jesus offended the powerful and the weak. Jesus offended those who would reject him. And Jesus offended his disciples. Jesus offended Herod and Pilate, the high priest, his Peter, John, James. He offended everyone. He corrected everyone because he's different. Because he was holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. He is different. That's what holy means. It means separate. It means removed from. It means he is different than we are. That he is separate from sin. He is pure. That he is other. That he is great. That he is high and lifted up. And it says the whole earth is filled with his glory. That glory is this word that means heaviness, weightiness. That he is the most significant thing in this world. The most significant thing in this world is God himself. And the angels, these pure angels who have never sinned, have to cover their eyes as they look on him. And they're saying he's holy, holy, holy. Look at him. He's the most significant being there is. He's the most significant thing in this world look at him you see here's what i'm here's who i'm most concerned about those who are here in this gathering in this room is that i'm most concerned not with those who are maybe struggling with doubt or even in um, tempted to despair those who are struggling i'm i am scared for and i'm concerned for those who would you know sing a song like we're worshiping the lion and the lamb and they're bored and you're bored You see, in God's presence, as we have a vision of a high view of who God is, the last thing we would be is bored. It's the last thing we would be. Brennan Manning 
says, by entering human history, God has demolished all previous conceptions of who God is and what man is supposed to be. We are suddenly presented with a God who suffers crucifixion. This is not the God of the philosophers who speak with cool detachment about the supreme being. A supreme being would never allow spit on his face. Jesus Christ has irreparably changed the world. When preached purely, his word exalts, frightens, shocks, and forces us to reassess our whole life. The gospel breaks our train of thought, shatters our comfortable piety, and cracks open our capsule truths. The flashing spirit of Jesus Christ breaks new paths everywhere. His sentences stand like quivering swords of flame because he didn't come to bring peace but a revolution. The gospel is not a children's fairy tale, but rather a cutting-edge, rolling thunder, convulsive earthquake in the world of the human spirit. God calls us to cultivate a high view of him. That he is holy and lifted up and exalted and glorious and majestic. You see, if we have a low view of God, if we make God in our own image, we will love things in the wrong proportions. And so instead of holy, 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 our lives will be about money, money, money. Or power, power, power. Or luxury, luxury, luxury. Or beauty, beauty, beauty. Or popularity, popularity, popularity. If we have this low view of God and he becomes an accessory to our lives, he becomes an accessory to us. But if we cultivate a high view of God, everything else orders itself into proper scale of glory. We live in this culture of glory distortion. It's true what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and cars and cell phones. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 says, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship our God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's worship God with reverence and awe because we have this high view of him as lifted up, as glorious, as magnificent, as beautiful, as holy. We need a high view of God. And so, you know, one of the implications of that is that worship is actually not about your preferences. Worship's not about your preferences. We're not meant to come in and critique. You know, worship leader, he's a little pitchy today. Didn't like the sound of the guitar today. Worship is about reordering our hearts towards God's glory. Recalibrating our hearts and say, you, highest praise belongs to you. Highest praise. Thirdly, this passage invites us to cultivate an awareness of our profound need. Isaiah has this vision of God, and in verse 5 he says, Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord 
Almighty. His response to a vision of God is, woe. <laughs> woe is me. The King James says, I am undone. I'm coming apart. I'm ruined. He's holy, and man, I am not. I'm not. I'm not like him. It's this moment of profound humility. You see, one of the issues, I think, is that we have moved uh, sin from the criminal court to the civil court. We've moved sin from the criminal court where, you know, sin and crimes are against the larger society to the civil court where I sue you because you've wronged me. And so justice is only oriented towards whether or not we've hurt other people, whether you've wronged me. Sin is only sin if it hurts other people. And it certainly is sin if we hurt other people. But we need to cultivate this Notion like Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned. When we have this low view of God and when we move um, sin to the civil court, that leads to a self-righteous pride and because we will just compare ourselves with others. And you can always find someone whom you're doing better than. Someone whom you can look down on in our hearts to say, I can't believe they would do that. But true justice comes only when we see ourselves in God's presence. When we have this vision of God and God is high and lifted up and we we see that our sin is primarily against him, we become humble and say, we all need mercy. We all need mercy. And it humbles us and it equals us. It levels us. Job. Job had an encounter with God. You know Job's life, right? He suffered great loss. Suffered the loss of all of his property, all his children. His friends turned against him, and he's, he's tempted to cry out to God. And God answers him. And God comes to him, and God meets with him. And at the end of the book of Job, in Job 42, he says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears had heard of you, I knew about you, but now my eyes have seen you. I've had a vision of who you are and what you're all about. He says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When I see God as high and lifted up, as holy, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. John, Jesus' best friend, this John who wrote himself into the gospel of John as right the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, Jesus' best friend who on the night Jesus was betrayed, he was leaning up against Jesus' chest in this moment of intimate um, friendship. This John has a revelation of Jesus risen from the dead and revealed to him in all of his glory and his splendor and his majesty and his power. And John says in Revelation 1, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When we have a vision, this high view of God, it it levels us. There's no room for pride. There's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for looking down on others. There's only room for, wow, I repent. I turn from my sin. We need a high view of God or we'll have a too high a view of ourselves. And fourthly, Isaiah chapter 6 invites us to cultivate a willingness to be sent. A willingness to be sent. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. 
With it, he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Your sin is covered. Your sin is done away with. You're okay in God's presence. You're okay in God's presence. You're welcomed in God's presence. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. When Isaiah's receives this message that his sin is done away with, that the sin which would cause him to humble himself, that is atoned for, it's done with. His immediate response is, others need to know about this good news. Others need to know about it. Others, people need to know this news. And so in uncertain times, would we cultivate a heart that every morning cries out, God, As I see you today, here am I. Would you send me? Would you use me as good news today? Would you use me as comforting news today? Would you use me to bring joy into this world? To share about the atonement of Jesus? To share about the greatness of our God that he welcomes us into his presence? The call for us to be people in our everyday lives who have this prophetic vision. A vision of hope and uncertainty that's unshakable. A vision of God in the midst of small gods, a vision of personal brokenness, and a message of good news that we bring to people around us. A.W. Tozer, I've been reading some Tozer. If you've not read A.W. Tozer, I'd encourage you to do that. A.W. Tozer says this, Between the scribe who has read and the prophet who has seen, there is a difference as wide as the sea. Read that sentence again. Between the scribe who has read about God who knows a bunch of stuff, and I've read the books, and I know what God's like, between the scribe who has read and the prophet who has seen God, there is a difference as wide as the sea. We are overrun today. We're overrun with orthodox scribes, but the prophets, where are they? The hard voice of the scribe sounds over evangelicalism, but the church waits for the tender voice of the saint who has penetrated the veil and has gazed with inward eye upon the wonder that is God. And yet, thus to penetrate, to push in sensitive living experience into the holy presence is a privilege open to every child of God. That privilege of Isaiah, that privilege of seeing God high and lifted up, of humbling ourselves and receiving the news your sin is atoned for. And who will go for me? Who will I send? And the opportunity for us to say, here am I, send me. That opportunity, that vision of God, that experience of atonement and salvation, of forgiveness and restoration and renewal, that experience of being sent, that's available to you. Jesus has won for you the privilege and the opportunity to come into God's presence today with boldness. Jesus has secured for you the privilege of seeing God as he is, of cultivating this high view of God, of understanding our profound need and being filled with such gratitude and joy and love in response to his good news over us, that we would send us out into this world to be peacemakers, to be joy-filled proclaimers of good news. Our world has gone mad. 
Friends, this is a moment for the church. We have unshakable hope in the good news that we're called to steward. So, Father in heaven, would you, would you call us even now and give us this vision of you as the one who's high and lifted up, that, Jesus, you are the lion of the tribe of Judah, that you are a mighty warrior, that you are a conquering king, that you are on the throne, that you are Lord of all things, that this earth is but your footstool. And, Lord, would you give us this this vision, not only of your transcendence and your, your glory and your majesty, but also your nearness. We need to cultivate that you're the lamb who was slain, that you're a friend that sticks closer than a brother, that you've sent the spirit as a great comforter to us, that we would have great assurance that your love would be shed abroad in our hearts. We, would you cultivate in us, Lord, this vision of you and your greatness and your grace? your transcendence and your imminence, that you're near to us. And that, Lord, as we would see you, as we would behold your glory, we would be transformed, that we would be changed. And I pray, Lord, that that vision of you would be multiplied 200 times across this room, even this morning. That as we would respond to you in worship, as we respond to you together in community now, Lord, that you would reveal yourself. And change us. For I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.